You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review Podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annalika, and with me today is Anna Fernandez de Arangis, with whom I'll be discussing EU law in contributing to the Union's policy objective of combating poverty and social exclusion. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will furthermore be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt FM. So welcome, Anna. It's lovely to have you here. So can you explain a little bit more about your research? Yes, of course. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me here. I'm very pleased to be able to speak a little bit about uh, what I've been doing in the last four years. So briefly said, what I've been looking into is what the possible role of EU law could be in fighting poverty and social exclusion. In order to do so, I looked into five different points. In the first four are existing areas of EU law. Or, or the EU in general, and I looked into the role of social policy, which includes the strategies, uh, different processes with the EU member states, funding. In the second place, I looked into the role of fundamental rights, and I looked into what different instruments we have and how they are implemented, whether they are enforceable or not, and then have a relation with uh, poverty alleviation. The third point I looked into are a number of other treaty provisions that uh, one way or another, I speak about poverty reduction or combating poverty and social exclusion and into what role they offer. This part also talked about the competences of the union, which are ultimately important to uh, formulate new instruments. And in the fourth place, I, took into, uh, I talked about existing uh, instruments of EU law that will not directly have an impact on poverty and social exclusion. And I evaluated how uh, this interaction works and, and how these instruments impact the, the lives of individuals. Uh, once I looked into these four existing aspects of EU law, I wonder, with these possibilities that we have, with the limitations that I address in these four points, what else can be done by EU law? And I discussed a number of instruments of secondary legislation that could be adopted under the current treaty framework. Okay, so that's a lot. So let's break it down a little bit. First of all, how do we define poverty within the European Union? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. Um, this is one of the issues I briefly touched in the introduction. Th there are a lot of different concepts of poverty and social exclusion and sociologists, philosophers have defined it in a very different way. Now the EU has adopted its own uh, definition of poverty, which is measured with three different aspects. One is income poverty, which is measured by people, when people, their, their disposable income of people is lower than 60% of the median equivalent income of, the, of a member state. Then there's a situation of a severe material deprivation, that is when individuals cannot access to a number of things, uh, material things, that are considered to, to be part of our normal life, which could include a car, a house, uh, but also things like a, a washing machine. And in the third place, we have uh, households with very low work intensity. Now, this uh, third one has been a little bit criticized because increasingly we have this phenomenon of in-work poverty, which means that 
even though there are houses with very high working density, this does not necessarily mean that the work that they do is sufficient to, to secure a life in dignity. Uh, but those are the, um, the three ways in which the EU measures poverty and social exclusion. That's very interesting. And what sort of achievements or aims has it set for itself? Well, uh, I think that the ultimate goal is, of course, uh, poverty eradication, which uh, we can also see in the Sustainable Development Goals in the Development Goal Number One. And this was, if I'm not mistaken, part of the Lisbon strategy, which preceded the uh, strategy that we've had until 2020. But this was perhaps a bit uh, too abstract in order to, to make substantial steps towards poverty alleviation. So in 2010, with the new strategy, the Europe 2020 strategy, the, uh, the European Union set a goal, a quantifiable goal, to reduce poverty with 20 million people. Meaning that from 2010 until 2020, 20 million people were going to be lifted out of poverty. Now, unfortunately, by the end of this strategy, only 3.1 million people were lifted. And I say, of course, only with quotation marks because there was a crisis in between and everything, but being such a quantifiable objective and having such a thorough strategy, it is rather disappointing the progress that was made. Sorry, is poverty equally distributed around the EU or are there member states that face higher demands for poverty relief? Yeah, so poverty and exclusion are not equally distributed across our societies. And this is the case of a number of member states, mostly newer member states uh, that have much higher numbers of poverty and exclusion, particularly with citizens in Bulgaria and Romania, but also other countries where redistributive structures were not as in place. And in the, in the previous crisis with the certain measures, they had a much bigger impact. Uh, mostly we saw this with the southern member states like Greece, Italy or Spain. Beyond mm, uh, inequality or imbalance between member states, there's also inequality between different members of the society. And there are also a number of vulnerable groups such as women, people with disabilities, children, young people or people, migrant people, people with migrant backgrounds who are a lot more prone to be at risk of poverty and social exclusion. Okay, and so what actions did the EU take in order to at least lift these 3.1 million people out of poverty? Yeah, uh, so this goal, as I said, was part of the Europe 20 strategy, which one of the headline targets was to, yeah, to target poverty in a quantifiable way, but it also had a number of uh, flagship initiatives, such as the European Platform Against Poverty, and this was all monitored through the European semester. Beyond this, uh, there was also a process of uh, monitoring within the social open method of coordination, which is sort of a dialogue between member states that is based on uh, reporting indicators, yeah, and, and very much uh, relies on peer pressure to, to take steps and, and mutual learning. Uh, and this is stopped by an increasing share of financial resources that the EU has put to, to fight inequalities, to, to fight poverty and social exclusion, such as the European Social Fund, or more recently, the Fund of European Aid for the Most Deprived, uh, and we see this increasingly. In parallel, we also see an increase in socialization in the European treaties, which is visible from a number of provisions that talk about social objectives, including combating uh, poverty and social exclusion, and also increasing competences. So would it be fair to observe, so you spoke first about some of the, the platforms that the EU created, and then you spoke about the European Social Fund. Would it be fair to observe that the EU has started with a facilitating role and has now moved to a more active role? 
Well, what we see, and especially um, this is something that I saw in the social policy chapter, is that the, most of the, the role of the EU, even though it has the possibility to take a more, to take a harder edge, uh, has been to assist member states in implementing their policies. And it has done so by either monitoring, reporting, having a set of indicators, or by uh, supporting them in a financial way. Yeah, with the European Social Fund, we see how this is being used for different distributive projects in different member states, and with the um, fund for the for the fund for European aid for the most deprived, uh, we see how this serves uh, in principle to to tackle emergency assistance for severe uh, severe material deprivation uh, from people suffering from severe material deprivation. It still sounds as if the primary responsibility for poverty relief is with the member states, though. Yes, it is. Um, the, the EU takes an assistant role, and I don't think this is a mistake per se. Normally, uh, social issues are better targeted at a local level, uh, but this does, of course, not mean that the EU doesn't have a responsibility towards its, its citizens. Parti- and this is particularly true when we see the, the impact that economic and market interests have had in the social protection system of the member states. So if these factors that have uh, such important ramifications for social protection are played at a supranational level, there should also be some social civilizers that, that also play at a supranational level. That sounds quite right that a lot of these things might be better off sort of at local level because they have understanding of the situation and local knowledge. So how does this comply and how does this relate to perhaps the balance of powers as well between the EU and the member states? Well, this is um, it, this is one of the, the, the key obstacles that I found in, in my research. And yeah, if I look into to what is that the biggest obstacle into in fighting poverty and social exclusion at the EU level by means of EU law, of course, because I was uh, within that from that narrower scope, we see that one of this uh, limitation is that this is perhaps one of the most beautiful things of the European project that is its diversity. And and I have this when I I talk to friends and and perhaps people that are not so versed in in EU law or or EU in general politics, they say, why isn't the EU taking a more prominent stand? Why isn't the EU doing more? We see it now with the the COVID crisis. Why, what is the EU doing? How how is it reacting? And sometimes I think we forget that that the European Union is a union of member states and that very often it's up to member states to, to give the power to the union to, to take action. Uh, and this, for example, more translated into what I did with EU law, uh, reflects on, on the competences. And, and we see that there is a very clear imbalance between the competences of the union for taking action in economic aspects or taking action in, in social competences. Now, I argue that the EU is not necessarily equipped to have a more prominent role. This being said, there is still a number of limitations within the legal powers of the union that don't don't allow the union to bring this balance between the different strands of EU law. And if the union ultimately wants to become a social market economy, uh, this would call for a bigger reform of the European project. Would that reform be something you would argue for, like if we move more power to the EU? you, You spoke about one of the advantages being that the union is more diverse and what other kind of advantages could there be with more power moving towards the EU in combating poverty and social exclusion? Well, the reform I think is necessary if the union truly aims at becoming a social union besides an economic union. And it is not only a possibility, but should be a part of its identity uh, if that's the aim. 
Now, having more a more uh, prominent role in fighting poverty and social exclusion does not necessarily mean that member states would see their, their diversity affected. For example, uh, when I formulated a number of instruments that could be adopted under the current treaties, I was careful to formulate these instruments in a way that they could leave enough flexibility for member states to, to adapt these instruments to their uh, national specificities. Most of the instruments uh, take the form of a framework directive, which would allow member states to adopt core standards at the EU, but then leave them enough room to, to determine how they, they want to, to do that, whether a lower threshold perhaps is enough to, to live a life in dignity, to uh, allow for justification and um, country-specific idiosyncrasies. Okay, so you spoke a little bit about these, these type of instruments that could be used under the current treaties or could be formulated, sorry, under yeah. the current treaties. Could you give a specific example of one such instrument? Yeah, um, one of the instruments that I that I propose, the first one, is a framework directive on minimum income, which would aim at uh, securing an income that is adequate enough as to, to live a life in dignity in its member state. Now, um, this is possible under the, the current framework, but it also has limitations. One of the limitations being that unless we opt for a dual basis, normally this instrument would only target people excluded from the labor market. Why is this a problem? It is true that uh, it is most urgent perhaps to secure income for those who don't have a job, who don't have a work-related income. However, we see that more and more people who work uh, don't have enough income either because their wages is too low for their yeah, to, to, to have a life identity for themselves, but also because sometimes only one person in, in, its, mom, in its family works and that wage is not sufficient to, to cover the income of the family. So people who work still might need uh, to secure this income. And perhaps this formulation is not possible under the current EU powers, but it is possible to formulate an instrument for a huge group of people that, that also need to, to have their rights, to, yeah, to see their rights enforceable. And why is the EU not formulating such an instrument? It, it sounds so logical to have a directive that at least guarantees some sort of basic income. Well, I think this brings me back to the, the previous question. One of the issues is diversity. We cannot forget on, on the one hand that the EU is a project that is started as an economic union and that therefore the, the social is a conversation that has uh, in a second or even third place. Um, this being said, I think that the commitment of the EU towards social rights, particularly over the last few years, has increased a lot. Um, this is perhaps a result of um, how greatly the previous economic crisis impacted our societies and that the European project was completely shaken after it. A very clear example of this commitment I'm talking about is the recent European pillar of social rights, where the EU and member states uh, committed delivering more effective rights for its citizens. So it is, it is logical, but we can't forget that there is still this is a very political, politically sensitive area, and member states are very reluctant to, uh, to let go for a variety of reasons. Some member states are hesitant because of the impact that this is going to have in their finances, because it would, mean, um, would have a, a substantial financial impact. Other member states are afraid of a race to the bottom. This is most likely the, the case of the Scandinavian countries that think that having a lower, having to having a common European framework would lower the thresholds that they already have. So yeah, it's, it's a very sensitive, uh, politically speaking, and 
uh, while I try to, to address some of these problems and obstacles, my main goal was to say that while this might be politically difficult to formulate, legally it is possible. So the argument that uh, the EU has not legal powers to, to act on this, this is no longer valid. Now, I'm going to ask you to get a little bit of a crystal ball out because you mentioned that there was an increase on focus on social rights after the euro crisis because the crisis hit the society so so hard could it be that after covid we see similar developments it could be it absolutely could be i i am a, an optimist and everyone that works with me would tell you the same and i want to believe that we've we learn enough from our mistakes as to to not repeat them um, and so far, the few steps that, that the EU has taken in the in direction of recovery, which not not a few steps, there have been many, but it's of course a slow process, point towards the right direction, I would say. And I, I want to give some examples. So, uh, of course, we have the recovery plan, which focuses on economic recovery, but it focuses on a sustainable and inclusive recovery. And something that we see in the document that the Commission has launched is that there's a constant referral to protecting income there is an acknowledgement that this uh, covid crisis is going to have a significant impact on the on the income of individuals and that, that this should be a concern that is addressed in the recovery process there is for example the issue of atypical employment perhaps the, the most uh, typical example that we have is the uber driver or or the the, the delivery um, riders uh, and how these people have uh, are more vulnerable in this and under these circumstances, not only for the health hazards, but also because when there is no uh, no demand for their services, they don't resort to unemployment because they often don't have unemployment rights. Their contracts are simply carved to zero and they have to resort to uh, last resort nets, which are sometimes not even there. And there, there is an acknowledgement of this process in the, in the recovery plan. So I think this is something to, to be positive about. In parallel, it doesn't seem that the social progress that uh, it was going on at the, at the EU has stopped because of COVID. We see the Commission uh, a few months ago, with the new Commission, they took a, a plan, plan of action, and one of the proposals that they wanted to formulate was an instrument on minimum wages. Now, with COVID, the, the negotiations could have, could have stopped, and this has not been the case. Um, the Commission is very much in a schedule. The consultation finished a few days ago. And there seem to, to keep progressing towards uh, attaining the social goals that were set pre-COVID. Will this be the case when the economic impact is more felt? Uh, I think it's too soon to say, but at least the first step point towards the right direction. That's as much as I can say at this moment. Well, that's at least good news, and I like to be an optimist as well. I am a little bit worried. Maybe you could comment, though. Um, you say that a lot of things are legally already possible, but it depends on political will. Is this political will impacted perhaps as well by the, on, the ongoing COVID negotiations that were very intense, especially between the frugal four, as they were called, versus the more periphery countries? Will that impact the political will to cooperate on these social goals? Well, I think it can go both ways. It is true that there are some countries that are more reluctant to to, to find an agreement for a variety of reasons, as I mentioned before. But I think at least part of this, these countries are gonna see with this crisis that many of the problems that we're facing are, are very much the same. And there's no reason to believe that uh, 27 different national measures could be more effective than, than one common one. 
uh, especially when we when we think about internal migration and it's just not effective enough, which should satiate the concerns of subsidiarity to a certain extent. So I think, again, to the, to the example of the, the typical economy and the, the platform work, um, we see that this is something that is happening in all member states. And now with COVID, we're going to see the impact a lot more, I think, on, on these forms of employment that we saw in the previous crisis, because the result of the previous crisis was partly that this typical employment boomed, because there was no more typical employment, so to speak. Uh, now that a lot more people rely on those those kind of wages or, or work income, that the impact that the COVID is going to have, I think is going to be felt rather similarly across different member states. So it could be that um, uh, that because of COVID, member states are even more reluctant, uh, but I think it could also be the other way around. All right, so let's hope for the other way around and let's hope for more legislation and more policy approach towards so a poverty relief and social inclusion rather than exclusion. Indeed. Thank you so much for talking to me today. We are reaching the end of our podcast. Is there anything you'd like to say about your research? Well, perhaps um, something that they, rep- uh, they constantly repeat to you and, you, uh, and you're doing research is to be very aware of where your limitations lie. And um, I want to say that this is the perspective of some, someone that has looked into a very specific issue uh, from a legal perspective and the way I targeted uh, poverty and social exclusion because of the EU definition of it uh, lights very much on securing income. Now, this being said, um, while EU effort is important, it is equally important that we target this at the, at the member state level, at the regional level, and while securing income is important, it is very important that we address also other policy areas as, such as healthcare, education, or taxation. So uh, this is one of the solutions that I, I was looking into, but is uh, by far not the only one, of course. Okay, well, thank you very much, and thank you all for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on the EU law in contributing to the union's policy objective on combating poverty and social exclusion. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcomed via contact at dublinlpr.ie. If you're interested in engaging in these kind of political and legal discussions, don't forget our event tomorrow on criminal courts and COVID-19, the right to fair trial during a pandemic. And next week's 20th of October, COVID-19 and fake news. How does it affect policy implementation and what can we do against it? For more information, check out our website on dublinlpr.ie under the section events. See you tomorrow. This was Anlik and I wish you a very pleasant day. And thank you, Anna. Thank you very much.